0: Everybody said, Amen. Amen. During the Middle Ages, there was a certain traveling scholar that went from town to town and he would do a little bit of lecturing, he would do a lot of studying, and he was just increasing his breadth of knowledge and passing on what he knew. And he was a poor fellow, he didn't make much money as a traveling scholar, but he ended up in an Italian town where he took sick. He was very ill, he was on his deathbed, and because he was poor... Uh, they transported him to a hospital that primarily had patients who were either homeless or runaways. At one point, while he was lying flat on his back and things looked pretty dire, a few of the doctors on the team there were standing beside his bed talking about his condition, and they didn't want him to hear and understand what they were saying, so they began speaking to each other in Latin, having no idea that the guy laying down in that bed was a traveling scholar who spoke Latin fluently. So they're speaking Latin to each other, and one of the doctors made the comments, this fellow here is such a worthless wanderer, we should use him for medical experimentation. At that, the man leaned up just slightly in his bed and spoke in fluent Latin, call no man worthless. For whom Christ died. I can't help but think that that traveling scholar had a pretty good handle on what Luke was trying to communicate in the Gospel of Luke. Make sure you have your Bibles with you. Open up to the third book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. As Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter today. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll be in Luke chapter 1 verse 39 as we see two more reactions to God's good news in this first chapter. I'm calling this message Contagious Joy and Praise. If you don't have your Bible with you today, we encourage you to bring it next time you're here. Hopefully that's next week. Uh, In the meantime, grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you along with your message notes from your bulletin. Uh, There'll be some blanks to fill in and some space on there for you to jot down some notes. Well, We've seen in the the Gospel of Luke so far as we began this series a couple weeks ago that Luke specifically wrote this Gospel to make it clear to everyone that Jesus is their Savior. Luke makes it clear that Jesus didn't simply come as the Savior of the Jews, He also came as the Savior of the non-Jews. He makes it clear that He didn't simply come as a Savior for men, but a Savior for women and children as well. He didn't simply come as a Savior for the rich and famous. He came as a Savior for the nobodies and those who are living paycheck to paycheck. And most of us in the room say amen to that. He came for you. He came for me. He came for all of us. As Jesus said at Zacchaeus' home in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save whoever is lost, and that includes you and me. So we have a Savior who is an equal opportunity Savior, and Luke makes it so clear in this Gospel account. Well, last Sunday we studied the first half of Luke chapter 1, and we saw that the old priest Zachariah and the young teenage girl Mary were both given some very good news, At separate times, God sent the angel Gabriel to give them messages. The angel Gabriel spoke to Zechariah while he was in the temple lighting incense. Uh, And the angel told him that his wife Elizabeth, even though she was old and advanced in years, and even though she had been barren all of her adult life, she was going to have a son. And he was going to be a special son. God would use him to blaze a trail for the Lord's coming. And about six months later, the angel Gabriel was sent, not this time to the temple in Jerusalem, but further north to a little hill country, a little hill town called Nazareth, with only a few hundred people who lived there. And that angel Gabriel was sent to this young teenage girl named Mary. And the angel told her that she, even though she was a virgin, would give birth to a son named Jesus, and he would sit on the throne of King David and be called the Son of God. Both Zechariah and Mary given good news from the same angel, Gabriel. But we saw last week that their reactions were quite different from each other. Zechariah, as he was there in that temple receiving that message about his wife giving birth to John the Baptist, he responded with unbelief. He said to the angel, how can I be sure of this? Uh, I'm an old man. My my wife is well along in years. And he just didn't buy it. He didn't buy it. Although in all likelihood he and his wife had been praying for a child for many years, Zechariah had given up hope that God was going to answer that prayer with a yes And so when the angel delivered God's good news to him, he responded with unbelief. God didn't like that very much, did he? We saw last week that he punished Zechariah. He caused him to immediately become mute. He couldn't speak. And so when he came out of the temple and the other priests were waiting outside, wondering how it went as he lit the incense, he tried to communicate this message and he couldn't even say a single word. God had taken his ability to speak away temporarily until his faith would return. Once and for all, God disciplined Zachariah, But unlike Zachariah, Mary responded to God's good news with faith when the angel told her that she would give birth to the promised Messiah. She was scared. She was confused. But she didn't allow her swirling feelings to override her faith. She allowed her faith to oversee her feelings. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Now, that's a remarkable thing for a scared teenage girl to say. Coming from this podunk little town of Nazareth up in the hill country of Galilee, which is a region was looked down upon by the rest of Israel. She was a a nobody from a, a, a nobody town. And yet the angel spoke to her and she freely accepted that message even though she was confused, even though she was scared. I love how Chuck Swindoll summarizes how Mary responded to the angel's message from God. Swindoll writes, Mary felt stunned, surprised, humbled, and curious. But never once did she say, This is impossible! I don't believe what I'm hearing. Notice she also didn't object. There's no way I'm going to stand before the people of Nazareth and listen to them call my son illegitimate. I refuse to spend the rest of my life defending my honor. Quite the opposite. While not understanding all the particulars, she responded with immediate belief, complete submission, and total trust in her Lord. That's well said, don't you think? We put ourselves in Mary's shoes and it must have been so frightening for her to know that her own parents wouldn't believe her. Her fiancé would not believe her. All of her friends and neighbors in town would not believe her. And she would probably for the rest of her life face this stigma of having a child illegitimately. For the rest of her life, she would probably have some people in that town looking down on her because they did not believe that this child was from God. But she, in faith, moved forward with God's marching orders anyway. Well, let's pick up in verse 39 where we left off last week. Say amen if you're there. We're going to see what happens after the angel Gabriel left Mary and she responded by saying, May it be to me as the Lord has decided. Picking up in verse 39 in Luke chapter 1. Here we go. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. When she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth, Zechariah's home, she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant." but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he has said to our fathers, and Mary stayed with Elizabeth for almost three months, and then she returned home. This is a great word, a great word that God gives here through Mary and a great account of that interaction with Elizabeth as both women were carrying in their wombs two miracle boys. It's an amazing passage. Elizabeth, the the wife of Zechariah the priest, is the third person that Dr. Luke highlights here in Luke chapter 1 who received good news from God. When Zechariah received God's good news, he reacted with unbelief. When Mary received God's good news, she responded with faith. And here we have that third person, Elizabeth. She received God's good news, and she reacted with joy. She reacted with great joy. The angel Gabriel had told Mary in verse 36, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. So, after the angel Gabriel had given this message to Mary, she must have felt that Elizabeth was about the only person on the planet who would actually believe what was happening inside her womb. She must have been. A a virgin being pregnant, the idea of that just sounded absolutely nutty. Impossible. It can't happen. The notion sounded insane. So at this point, after the angel left Mary giving her this message that she was going to become pregnant with the Holy Spirit coming upon her, even though she was a virgin, and she would deliver that baby still as a virgin. Even though this sounded impossible, she receives the message, and she must have known as soon as that Gabriel, uh, angel Gabriel left, she was in a situation that was quite a pickle. She's engaged to Joseph, but chances are Joseph would not believe her. Her parents love her and they respect her, but chances are her parents wouldn't believe her. Chances are her neighbors and friends would jump to the conclusion that she had had sex outside of marriage. And she would bear this stigma. And so she thought possibly a barren woman in her 60s who was six months pregnant and her husband had just been visited by one of God's highest angels, perhaps she might believe. What was going on inside of Mary. And so almost immediately it would seem after receiving that message from Gabriel, she bolts. And Mary travels between three and five days. how long it would have taken to get from Nazareth to the hill country of Judea to be where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived. And so she decides to go to visit Elizabeth because possibly she's the only one on the planet who would understand what she was going through. And so she walks into Zachariah and Elizabeth's home. And as she walks through the front door and greets Elizabeth, what happens in verse 41 is one of the most remarkable verses in all of chapter 1. Verse 41 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, did John really jump inside her womb? And if he did jump inside of her womb, was it really a leap of joy? Or is Elizabeth just kind of stretching the truth a little bit? couple questions here. So did he really leap inside her womb? We all know, those of us who have either personally gone through a pregnancy or had a spouse or close family member who did, we know that when babies are inside the womb, in those last few months of pregnancy, it's common for uh, little babies in the womb to poke. And sometimes you look at mommy's tummy and you can even see a little protrusion because little baby's poking. It's common for babies to kick. And sometimes a pregnant mom in her seventh or eighth month will Got me right in the ribs that time. We know babies kick. We know babies stretch. They get a little cramped in there, especially some of you ladies may have given birth to a 9 or 10 pound baby. That's a lot of baby in there. And sometimes those babies get a little cramped. They start stretching. And so we know babies poke. We know they kick. We know they stretch inside the womb. But leap, that seems like a bit of a leap to say. And then we ask, did he leap? And maybe he did leap, but did he leap for joy? How was this possible? Well, I think we find that answer right there in that same verse, verse 41. It was possible because of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is able to come upon Mary and create a new life inside her womb, even though she was a virgin, if the Holy Spirit can see to it that a barren woman in her 60s can have a baby inside her womb, I think possibly the Holy Spirit could pull off a little pre-born leaping, don't you? And so the Holy Spirit is upon Elizabeth, and so I think it's safe to assume she has the Holy Spirit come upon her as John the Baptist leaps within her womb. It stands to reason that John himself was filled with the Holy Spirit as he leaps inside the womb. And so this is kind of cool to think about. The translation we looked at, the NIV, in verse fifteen, it says He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. That's what Zechariah had said, or excuse me, what Gabriel had said to Zachariah when he was telling him that his wife would give birth to John the Baptist, it's back in verse fifteen. But if you look at a little bit more literal translation of what Gabriel said in verse 15, for instance, the New American Standard, it translates his words this way. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. It's a more literal translation of what Gabriel said to Zachariah. So that's kind of cool. So Gabriel said to Zachariah, your wife is going to give birth to a special son, and the Holy Spirit will fill that son even before he is born. And so we ask the natural question, at what point when he was in utero, was John first filled with the Holy Spirit? In all likelihood, it was right here. So if that's the case, I think this is pretty cool, because imagine what happens. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to give birth to the son of David, and he is going to sit on the throne eternally. He is going to be your Lord. And she is thrilled by that news, but she is scared. She hurries off to Zachariah and Elizabeth's home, and as she walks through the door and greets Elizabeth for the first time, at that point it would seem the Holy Spirit fills John the Baptist inside her womb, who proceeds to leap for joy, and as he is filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth herself is filled with the Holy Spirit as well, which means that the Holy Spirit fell upon John the Baptist for the first time when Jesus entered the room. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? And so Jesus comes into the room inside Mary's belly, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. It would seem for the first time John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. He leaps for joy as if to say, hey, Mama, I can't talk yet, but i got a message for you. I I want you to know that my Lord and your Lord has just entered the building. Mama, I want you to know that you have not seen me face to face yet and haven't had a chance to talk with me yet, but I want you to make sure you get to know him because he's going to be born in about nine months and you don't want to miss him because he's king of kings and lord of lords. Mama, make sure you don't miss the fact that my lord and your lord is in this house and you better start getting excited. Look at verses 42 through 45. I love how Elizabeth responds here. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. How did Elizabeth know things about Mary's pregnancy and baby Jesus that Mary had never told her? She just walked through the door. They hadn't been texting each other. They hadn't been talking to each other on the phone. How did she know these things? And it seems very clear that she knew them because, once again, God's Holy Spirit was involved. He told her. And so as the Holy Spirit reveals these things to Elizabeth, that Mary was the one that had just greeted her, what was going on inside her womb, who that child was going to be, why that baby inside her own womb had leaped for joy, all of that the Holy Spirit is revealing to her. Do you understand and know that the Holy Spirit speaks to His people? The Holy Spirit still does it today. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us first and foremost through His Word. But the Holy Spirit at times will lay things on our hearts as well. We always test it with the Word of God to make sure it's Him and not last night's bad burrito speaking. But the Holy Spirit speaks to His people. It's very clear that He was speaking to Elizabeth. And Mary, you can imagine, must have taken this huge sigh of relief as Elizabeth said what she said. She must have taken this huge sigh of relief if there had been any doubt in her mind during her trip to uh, that hill country of Judea that Elizabeth would understand her pregnancy. That doubt was removed in seconds as Elizabeth joyfully celebrated the Christ child in Mary's womb. And Elizabeth's joy was contagious. Mary, who is likely filled with the Holy Spirit at this point as well, began speaking a beautiful new psalm to God, and it's recorded for us in verses 46 through 56. In many Christian circles, Mary's psalm here in those 11 verses is called the Magnificat. Say that with me, the Magnificat. Why would her psalm here be called that? Well, in the Latin translation of the Gospel of Luke, when this psalm here in chapter 1 is translated into Latin, the very first word in Mary's psalm in verse 46 is magnificat, which in Latin translates into English as glorify or magnify. And so centuries ago, uh, those that worked off of the Latin translation of the New Testament began referring to her psalm as the magnificat after the first word in her psalm of praise. Uh, many Christians see some strong similarities between Mary's psalm here in Luke 1 and Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2 after she had a miracle baby of her own. uh, Without a doubt, there are similarities between Mary's psalm and Hannah's prayer. Uh, But one thing I find most striking is that Mary, as she praises God here, if you were to look for cross-references or allusions to specific verses in the Old Testament that can be found in Mary's psalm in these 11 verses... I think you'd be taken aback that Mary here is either quoting or paraphrasing sections of 21 different Old Testament verses. That's pretty impressive. She alludes to 21 different Old Testament verses, and those 21 different Old Testament verses are found in seven different books of the Old Testament. She alludes to verses in Genesis, in 1 Samuel, in Job, in Psalms, in Isaiah, in Habakkuk, and in Zephaniah. So it's safe to say that Mary knew the Bible pretty well. Because as she is speaking this psalm, it would seem extemporaneously she's drawing from almost two dozen different scriptures that she had hidden upon her heart. It's safe to say that Mary knew scripture well. And if you and I had been in the room with Mary and Elizabeth on this particular day, their joy would have been palpable. These two were beaming. They were rejoicing in what God was doing, and they they couldn't contain themselves. And there's so much that can be drawn from these two ladies' words here in Luke chapter 1. For the sake of time, I just want to point out a few of those things that are especially important to note. Verse 42, I want you to notice that Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Now that's significant because, as we touched on last week, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has painted the picture of Mary as some sort of super saint and also in more recent years a co-savior with Christ. Notice what Elizabeth says as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, blessed are you among women. She doesn't say blessed are you above women. Mary is never described in Scripture as being above women as being some sort of superhuman, of being some sort of uh, co-savior or co-messiah. Not in the least, she is alongside every other woman who's ever lived, but God chose to bless her in a special way. She is blessed among women, not above women. Note in verses 46 and 47, Although Mary knew full well that she had a hard road to hoe, she was focused on glorifying God and celebrating her Savior. Despite her concerns, despite her worries, despite her fears, she praises God and brings Him glory in those verses. Notice in verses 48 and 49, Mary held a very humble view of herself, but she also at the same time held a very lofty view of God. We live sadly in a day and age when most people do the opposite of what Mary does here In verses 48 and 49, she humbles herself and has a lofty view of God. Wouldn't you agree that most people today have a lofty view of themselves and a very piddly view of God? Sadly, we live in that kind of culture today. People bring God down to our level. You know, we throw around God's name like it's the F word or SH or whatever. It's just, you know, an everyday word. We toss around His name. And we bring him down. We have a very high view of ourselves, a very low view of God. Not Mary. She had a very high view of God, a very humble view of herself. According to verse 56, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. So you can do the math. She goes and visits Elizabeth after the angel Gabriel had announced the birth of Jesus to her that was coming. And if you go back and look at those verses where Zechariah is, uh, excuse me, where the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary, it makes it clear that it was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So by the time she goes through Elizabeth's door and greets her, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And so she stays with Elizabeth for about three more months. And so that puts it at nine months. Chances are she stayed until John the Baptist was born. And then after seeing it with her own eyes, went back home. To Nazareth. If that's the case, how cool it would have been for Mary to hold the promised forerunner to Jesus in her arms. And as she would hold him in her arms, he would just be inches away from the Messiah in her womb that John the Baptist would announce when the time came. Pretty cool to think about how God was weaving the stories of these two women together. Now let's pick up in verse fifty seven. We've already looked at the reaction of Zechariah. He responded to God's good news with unbelief. We've looked at the reaction of Mary, who responded to God's good news with faith. We looked at the reaction of Elizabeth, who responded to God's good news with joy. And now we're going to go back to Zechariah. We're going to go back to Zechariah. It's as if God gives him a second chance here in Luke chapter one. God's going to give him some good news and this time he's going to react differently. So in Luke chapter one We're picking up in verse 67. Let me get to the right verse here. Let's say 67, 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Then they said to her, there's no one among your family or relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. So Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's amazement he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosened and he began to speak praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe and throughout the hill country of Judea people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard about it wondered, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and has redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. As He said through His holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath He swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the To shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Early in the chapter, Zechariah was in the doghouse with God, wasn't he? He was in the doghouse because it was the greatest day of Zachariah's life. We talked about this last week. It was the greatest day of his life because among eight hundred priests in Israel, it was his day. He was the one of eight hundred chosen to light the incense in the temple. Something he probably had dreamed of doing for years. He got to do on this day. But not only that, as he's lighting that incense in the temple, God sends one of his highest angels, Gabriel, to deliver a message to uh, Zechariah. No other priest received that kind of honor. And not only did he get a message from God, he got the message that his wife would give birth to the forerunner, to the Messiah, something people had prayed for for centuries. And so it was without a doubt the greatest day in Zechariah's life. And he responded with unbelief. God didn't care for that too much. He didn't care for that too much. And so he couldn't speak for nine months. So after a very challenging (laughs) pregnancy where he couldn't speak word one to his wife or anyone during that nine months that John the Baptist was in his wife's womb. Finally, the day comes when the John the Baptist is born and as was the custom on the eighth day, they had him circumcised. This is what all the Jews in those days would would do with the baby boys. They would circumcise them on the eighth day and also on the eighth day, uh, the dad would officially name that child. And in case you're curious, in those days, a girl was not named normally on the eighth day. A girl could be named on any day within the first month of her life. Obviously, in those days, men were lifted up in a higher position than ladies. And so basically they said, guys get the honor of being named on the eighth day in front of all the family and friends. The girl, eh, name her any old time. And so, unfortunately, that's the way things worked those day, in those days. And so on the eighth day, uh, little John is circumcised, and he's being given his name. Now, Zechariah couldn't speak, and so they went ahead and just assumed that Zechariah wanted to name him Junior. Because he's an old man. It's his only son. He's not going to have another. He's in his 60s, and so yeah, we'll just call him Zechariah. Chip off the old block. And Elizabeth, the mom, speaks up and says, no, 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 his name is John. Well, they thought she'd flipped her lid because there's no one in that family named John. And so they ignored the mom And they turned to Zachariah, we know you can't talk, but can you somehow set your wife straight here? She's calling this kid John. There's no John in your family. Would you set it straight? Let her know once and for all, for all to hear, for all to know, his name is Zachariah. And so he asked for a, a little dry erase board, and they gave him the pen. It was probably a black or a red color. I don't know. And so he gets his little board out, and he writes on there to everyone's amazement, his name is John. And as soon as he says his name is John, what happens? God unlocks his mouth, releases his vocal cords, and he can speak for the first time in nine months. Now, what does he do now that he can finally speak again? I'm kind of hungry. Can you bring me some more of the mashed potatoes, please? Woman, there's been something that's been heavy. I've been meaning to tell you something, give, me a, give you a piece of my mind. No, he doesn't yell at his wife. Uh, he doesn't say bring on uh, some more uh, uh, mac and cheese or mashed potatoes. He doesn't do any of that. He uses his newfound voice to praise God. I think that's a telling, telling statement here in the Scripture. Zechariah reacts to God's good news now, not with unbelief, but with praise Dr. Luke records Zachariah's psalm of praise in verses 67 through 79. In the Latin translation, the first word in his psalm of praise is benedictus, from which we might get our word benedictine or benediction. Benedictus translates as praise. So for centuries, many Christians have referred to Zachariah's psalm as the benedictus. So Mary's psalm of praise in this chapter is the magnificat, And then Zacharias is the Benedictus. It's the second of four psalms of praise that Luke includes for us in the first two chapters. We'll see next week and possibly the week after. The other two are in chapter 2 when the angels are announcing Jesus' birth to the shepherds. And they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. That's the third psalm of praise in these first two chapters. And the fourth will be given by a certain person at the temple when Jesus is dedicated as a baby. And so here we have the Benedictus. It's the second of these four psalms in the first two chapters. And if you compare Zachariah's psalm of praise with Mary's psalm of praise that we just looked at a few minutes ago, you'll probably notice a few similarities and a few differences. Both Mary's psalm of praise and Zachariah's psalm of praise uh, both mention uh, God's salvation, both mention God's mercy, but there's some interesting differences. Mary's psalm Uh, is uh, quite different in that it's a very personal psalm of praise. Zechariah's, if you look at it closely, is a psalm of praise on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. I find that kind of interesting. And then something Zechariah does in the second half of his psalm of praise, something different than what Mary does in hers, is it's very prophetic, what he says beginning in verse 74. Notice what he says, "...and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High," For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. It's very prophetic. It's a word of prophecy about his son uh, that is just has just been born. And so he has that element of prophecy in his Psalm of Praise, a little bit different than Mary's. So we see down the home stretch of Luke chapter one that Zechariah experiences a transformation of faith. He began in a place of unbelief, but he finishes the chapter in a place of praise. And chapter 1 ends with a quick overview of John's next 30 years. We know that he began his ministry somewhere around the age of 30. And notice what it says in summary of those 30 years at the end of the chapter. It says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel, As I mentioned to you earlier today and also last week, my best guess is Zechariah and Elizabeth were in their 60s when they gave birth to John the Baptist. And so what happened in all likelihood is uh, when he reached adulthood, his parents had already passed away. And so what seems to be summarized in this final verse of chapter 1 is uh, as he was growing up, of course, Elizabeth and, and Zechariah raised him. But they ended up passing away. And once they did, he seems to have retreated uh, to the desert, prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so. And so he's living off the land. As By the time he begins his ministry, a little later at the age of 30, it says that you know he's eating locusts and wild honey. And he's basically wearing camel hair as clothes. So he becomes a bit of a nomad, it would seem, after his parents passed away. He goes into the desert, and that's where he remained until God called him to begin his active ministry. There's two life lessons that I think we should pull from this chapter. Uh, Two elements that I don't think we've touched on as of yet, but I don't want you to miss. Uh, Lesson number one, this is really important. I wish we had a little bit more time to talk about it, but I do want to at least just say a few words about this first lesson, which is, God's blessings often bring both joy and sorrow. God's blessings often bring both joy and sorrow. As Christians, we want God to bless us, don't we? How many of you here are Christians? Raise your hand quickly. How many of you are Christians and do not want God to bless you? Go ahead and raise your hand. I want no blessings from you, God. Just leave me alone. Don't answer my prayers. Don't give me anything good. No, that almost is an oxymoron to have a Christian that's not blessed. We want to be blessed, don't we? We want to be blessed. We, we want God to bless us with, a, uh, with good health. We want God to bless us with a loving spouse and kids that actually will claim us as their parents. Uh, we want God to bless us with money to pay the bills. We want God to bless our church with more salvations, don't we? We had a baptism on Friday night. One of our teenagers got baptized, so that was awesome. We love to see that. We want God to bless us with more salvations. We want God to bless our church with more volunteers and more impact in our community. I don't know of a church that would say, God, please give us less impact in our community. We want everybody to not know we exist in this town. Okay? No, we want God to bless us with impact. These blessings are all wonderful, aren't they? The personal blessings, the family blessings, the marriage blessings, the, the health blessings, the church blessings. These are wonderful These blessings can bring us so much joy, but as we follow Mary through the gospel accounts, we discover that God's blessings don't just bring us joy, they also bring us sorrow. It's going to be said in chapter 2, Mary, a sword will pierce your own heart as well. Because she would give birth to the Messiah! The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And she was filled with joy because of this. But at the same time, that same woman, that same loving mother would have to see with her own eyes her precious boy bleeding to death on the cross. She would have to see with her own eyes her boy being whipped and scourged and chunks of flesh torn out of his back. She would see the pool of blood at the base of of where they would whip Him. She would hear with her own ears those words, Crucify Him, crucify Him. Let His blood be on us and on our children. But whatever you do, make sure you crucify Him. You see, God's blessings bring both joy and sorrow. I love how the late William Barclay, a 20th century Scottish theologian and teacher, I like how he summarizes this. He writes... To be chosen by God so often means at one and the same time a crown of joy and a cross of sorrow. The piercing truth is that God does not choose a person for ease and comfort and selfish joy, but for a task that will take all that head and heart and hand can bring to that task. God chooses a man in order to use him Jesus Christ came not to make life easy, but to make men great. Wise words. Jesus came not to make life easy, but to make men great. And how much does that fly in the face of the prosperity gospel that's being preached in many pulpits around our nation today? How that flies in the face of the health and wealth preaching You give your life to God, and you have enough faith, and He's going to make you rich. You have enough faith, He'll give you whatever you ask for. You have enough faith, He's going to heal you of your cancer. You have enough faith, He's going to take care of all your illnesses. You have enough faith, and your marriage is going to be restored. And some of us, we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we wonder why we still get that eviction notice. And we wonder why the doctor continues to say the cancer is still there. We wonder why our husband or wife walks out the door despite all of our efforts and all of our prayers. Sometimes stuff happens anyway. And God wants us to understand that His blessings do bring joy. But those blessings sometimes will bring sorrow as well. Some people will rejoice when you follow Jesus Christ well. And other people around you will persecute you till their dying day because of that same decision to accept Christ. But I hope that like Mary, you will love Him You will serve Him. You will trust Him. You will obey Him regardless of what sorrow may come. Weeping may remain for a night, but you know what comes in the morning, don't you? Weeping may remain for a night, but joy, rejoicing, will come in the morning. Lesson number two. In the past, you responded to God's good news with unbelief, but today is a new day. It's a time to respond with faith and praise. It's a time to respond with faith and praise. If Zechariah could speak to us today, he'd probably say something like this. Do not make the same foolish mistake I made when I was standing there in the temple and refused to believe the angel standing right beside me. Nothing is impossible with God. When you receive God's good news, receive it in faith and praise Him because our great and awesome God is good and He is strong and He is worthy of our praise. Lord, thank You for being good, for being strong, and for being worthy of praise. We bless You. We honor You. And Lord, we want to trust You. Lord, perhaps because of the Catholic Church's errors with Mary, we have avoided her more than we should. But Lord, it's just here as a shining example in Luke chapter 1 that there is so much that we could learn from this faithful servant of Yours. Despite the stigma that was attached to her. Despite the misunderstandings, despite the people talking under their breath, despite the pointing fingers, and despite what would come some 33 years later as she would have to see with her own eyes her son hanging on the cross, she said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me just as you have said. Lord, help us to respond to your marching orders for us with that much faith, with that much conviction, with that much commitment to obey you no matter what. Lord, some of us here today as we look at our Christian walks, Lord, we know that there was rejoicing in the past, but there's some real weeping going on right now some real hardship going on. We're going through that period of suffering. We're going through that period of sorrow. I pray that You'd be with those, Lord, in that period of sorrow and suffering right now. That You would strengthen their faith. That You would renew their hope. And Lord, that they would hold on to the example of Mary, who may have had her heart broken on the day that Jesus was crucified but rejoicing came on Easter morning when Jesus Christ was risen again. And rejoicing will come once again for us as well because once again you are good, you are strong, and you are faithful to finish what you have begun in each of your followers until the day Jesus Christ calls us home. And it's in His name that we pray.